millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start our episode today, this is just a reminder, History Hack does have a Patreon account and all of your donations are gratefully appreciated. There's lots of perks on there, secret groups on Facebook. Do get involved. We would love to see more of you. Enjoy the episode today. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. I've got Kate with me today and Charlie's lurking as well because she just cannot stay away from this subject uh, once she gets on her soapbox. Kate, why is Charlie hanging around and stalking our guest? Because we are being joined today by no other than Matt Lewis, the author of The Survival of the Princes in the Tower, among many other fantastic books. Um, Matt Lewis is an author and an historian with a passion for the medieval period. He was recently elected as chairman of the Richard III Society and has a particular interest in the Wars of the Roses, Richard III and the Princes in the Tower. The question of what happened to the two young princes after they were last seen at the Tower is one that has sparked more furious debate than almost any other event since the late 15th century. Over 500 years later, the answer is still hotly contested by all sorts of people, from historians to housewives, students to scholars. Almost everyone you meet has an opinion. However, the debate about who killed them fails to consider the lack of evidence that they were even killed at all. Wow. Matt, Here we are. So you decided to wade into a bun fight as a historian, basically. Why not? I mean, if you're going to get into an argument, it might as well be the biggest one in history and you might as well be on an odd side of it that nobody else seems to be on. Absolutely. Well, let's hear you out. So for anyone who's been under a rock for the last 500 years, who are the princes in the tower? Tell us a bit about them. They are the sons of Edward IV, who was the first Yorkist king of England, and his wife, Elizabeth Woodville. Um, they are Edward V, who was known as Edward Prince of Wales most of his life, became Edward V when his father died. Uh, he's born in November 1470 in Sanctuary at Westminster Abbey while his dad has been kicked out of the kingdom for a while um, and his dad eventually comes back wins the battles of Barnet and Tewkesbury wins the kingdom back and gets to meet his son uh, it's a little bit Hamilton-y I'm gonna meet my son um, so in April 1483 when everything kicks off he is 12 years old and he has been brought up from the age of two so from the last for the last 10 years he's been brought up at Ludlow on the Welsh borders effectively using Ludlow as a base and Wales as a kind of miniature kingdom to teach him how to rule, how to build those networks of power and to prepare him to be the next king of England. Albeit that nobody thought it was going to come this soon. His dad is only 40 when he dies and, and nobody expected it to happen when he was only 12. 
Uh, and the other prince is his younger brother, Richard of Shrewsbury, who was the Duke of York. And he's born in August 1473. And so he is nine when everything kicks off in April 1483. Um, he is brought up much more around court at London with his, his mom and his sisters. And there's really strong parallels there between Arthur Tudor and Henry VIII's kind of backgrounds and upbringings. Arthur Tudor is out at Ludlow being raised to be the next king. Henry is raised around the court and around his mom and his sisters. Um, so a really strong parallel there. Um, and in terms of the story of the princes in the tower, it's really hard to say anything here that isn't contentious or, or hotly debated. I mean, all we can say for certain is that Edward V gets to London from Ludlow, but is never crowned. His uncle, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, becomes King Richard III instead. And the boys kind of vanish from the historical record, at least the official historical records. And people have long assumed that that meant that they were murdered, most likely on Richard's orders. Most people will say they were murdered in 1483 and it was Richard who did it. Um, but if you go beyond kind of that, that bare outline of the facts, you, anything else is getting into really subjective opinion, um, which we have to do here because there is such a lack of evidence for anything that we have to draw conclusions from the, the kind of tiny grains that we have. And that always means that two people can look at exactly the same piece of evidence when it comes to the prince in the tower and have two completely different opinions of it, both of which you can absolutely argue convincingly. So it's a really sticky subject it it kind of forces people to take sides quite a lot um and it remains kind of a mystery really nobody knows exactly what happened to the princes in the tower so specifically what led you to the conclusion that the princes might have survived their time in the tower i think i probably started off i wanted to be awkward nobody ever thinks about this <laughs> so i thought why does nobody ever think about it i I read, read lots of books about the Wars of the Roses. It's been a fascination of mine since I was at school. Um, and all the books I read will generally say Richard did it. Richard had them killed in 1483. They'll pay a bit of lip service to the idea that it could have been the Duke of Buckingham, maybe. Um, and maybe the odd one will say, and there was some talk that they could have survived. But most books, will, most historians will tend to come back to but probably Richard killed them. And that's the end of that, really. And I just felt like there had to be a little bit more to it than that. There had to be more options. So when I wrote the book, I was really careful not to say that I've solved the mystery. This isn't me claiming that I have the answers. This was really a case of we've kind of taken Richard's guilt almost for granted for 500 years. But what if we look at the other parts of the story? Is there anything that might convince us that there are other possibilities is and most particularly is there anything to the potential that they survived beyond 1483 and even beyond 1485 into the the Tudor years so I try to avoid claiming that I've I've kind of solved anything um but I also wanted to get past that kind of well Rich, Richard III is always portrayed in history as a, as a caricature and I feel like I'm quite drawn to characters that are, are portrayed that way. So if they're all good or all bad, it rings alarm bells with me because nobody's like that, really. Or at least very, very few people are, are ever like that. Um, and so that's what, it, you know, I, I'm interested in the story of Richard III. I'm interested in the story of his dad, Richard, Duke of York, for pretty much the same reasons. And the Princes in the Tower fits that bill as well. Everybody thinks they know the answers. 
everybody thinks it's solved. But actually, I think if you scratch at the surface just a tiny little bit, that story starts to crumble and fall apart. Maybe not enough to convince everybody that they could have survived. But I don't think the traditional story has any more evidence to back it up than the ideas that they weren't murdered at all in 1483. You're clearly not the only one because we do have Mrs. White in the room. And Mrs. White, you don't like the uh, the normal narrative either, do you? I, I think that that's just the best point ever, Matt. No one is no one is all black and white. And when they're presented as one or the other, then alarm bells should go off. So I can't wait to hear some more from you on this. Let's start with who the usual suspects are and why you're not convinced that any of them are guilty. So the the obvious prime suspect is Richard III. And I, I would never say that Richard III couldn't have done it. I tend to say that I don't think he did it, but it remains the most likely scenario if they were murdered in 1483, that Richard was behind it. And if I'm going to ask people to entertain my theories, then I have to at least entertain the, the notion that Richard could have done it as well. I can't prove it any more than I can prove my theories 100%. But I also think the reverse is true. No one can prove that Richard did it and no one can disprove my theories either. So I think we have to give we all have to give each other a little bit of space to have a sensible conversation about this. It does stir an awful lot of passion and people will defend their positions quite vehemently. But I think we're never going to get through this argument unless we allow it a little bit of space to breathe and, and we have a, a sensible conversation about some of it. Um, I have a lot of problems with the idea of Richard III's guilt. Um, and if anyone wants to read the book, there's lots of them in there. But if I have to boil it down to one kind of key point, I normally point to the idea that if if Richard killed the princes in the tower, so let's assume that he's the kind of monster who is going to kill a 12-year-old and a nine-year-old boy. There's no evidence for this anywhere in the previous 30 years of his life, but let's assume he has a, a change of personality and thinks, right, I'm going to kill my nephews. If he does that, it's to prevent them from being used as a threat against him from for someone abducting them and using them to challenge his right to the throne. But Richard never publicizes the fact that they're dead. He remains silent about it for the, the remaining two years of his life. So if he kills them and doesn't say anything about it, he's killed them for no real gain. And we see the evidence of that running into Henry VII's reign when at least Perkin Warbeck comes forward claiming to be the younger of the princes in the tower and is widely believed. So the fact that nobody knew that they were dead meant that if Richard killed them and kept quiet, he didn't reap the rewards of doing the deed. It wouldn't make sense to do it and then not tell everybody that they're dead. And so why would you bother? Well, exactly. It doesn't achieve anything. I mean, if they're dead, I guess they're not available for anybody to take, but that's not going to stop people trying. We have lots of stories around Richard II, you know, after he was dead, there were plots that a belief that he was still alive in Scotland and plots to try and get him back on the throne. We have the same with Edward II. There are lots of stories that he didn't die at Barclay Castle when traditional history tells us he did. And, and you know, his half brothers end up getting executed for trying to put him back on the throne years after he's supposed to have been dead. So we know that stories even and their bodies were shown, their bodies were displayed as dead. So we know that the the belief that these people could still be alive is enough to spark revolt and unrest. So why not put it to bed? 
So we have, we have, like I say, a strong history of showing bodies. Um, it had happened with Edward II, Richard II, Henry VI most recently, as well as the Earl of Warwick and his brother after they were killed at the Battle of Barnet, precisely so that everybody would know that they were dead and they couldn't be a threat to the, the throne anymore. So for Richard to show these children's bodies would definitely be distasteful. But I also think if you believe that Richard would do it, I don't know why you think he would draw the line at then displaying the bodies to prove that they were no longer a threat to him. He's kind of this much of a monster, but not quite that much of a monster. And he could blame natural causes. He could say that someone else had done it, most notably the Duke of Buckingham after the October rebellions. And at this point, I think it doesn't really matter whether people even believe the reasons that he's giving. The point is they have to know the boys are dead. Otherwise, the threat from them persists, and it does into the Tudor regime. And I just find it hard to reconcile a man ruthless enough to do it, but not to lie about how they died to, to get his point across and to get the benefits of doing the deed. And so I think if Richard had his nephews murdered and then kept it quiet, he committed a, a terrible, awful crime for absolutely no reason and for no gain. And it just doesn't quite make sense in my head. Um, so people are always quick then to ask, why didn't Richard produce the bodies or produce his nephews, sorry, if they were still alive? Why didn't he wheel them out and show them to everybody to prove that they were still alive? And I'd say that he would have been taking a huge risk to do that, to alert people to their location, to remind people of their cause, to, to remind everybody that there was a challenge, a potential challenge to his own throne out there. So I think perhaps the question we should be asking is if they were dead, why didn't Richard produce the bodies? Not if they were alive, why didn't he show them? Because there were very good reasons not to. The other suspects that, that float around have similar holes in the stories, but in many ways, a lot of them are as likely as Richard if there were any murders. So the Duke of Buckingham, Henry Stafford, is a prime candidate. He's a man who'd been in the political wilderness in Edward IV's reign. Edward IV clearly didn't like Buckingham or saw something in him he didn't trust. So he's been pretty much excluded from all government activity. As soon as Edward IV dies, as Richard Duke of York is making, oh, sorry, Richard Duke of Gloucester, I can't call him Richard Duke of York. That's awful. <laughs> as Richard Duke of Gloucester is making his way south, uh, he is joined by Henry Stafford, the Duke of Buckingham, who sort of appears out of nowhere and becomes a really fast ally to Richard. He said his right hand all through the rest of the spring and summer is, is credited with really helping Richard onto the throne, paving the way kind of thing, if you believe that that's what was going on. Um, and then in October, he falls out with Richard over something, rebels. My belief is that Buckingham was making his own bid for the throne in October 1483. He has perfectly good royal blood descended from Edward III. Um, he's, it's often been claimed that he's championing Henry Tudor at this point because Henry Tudor takes part in the rebellion as well. But I don't see how Buckingham would benefit from that because he's the second most powerful man in Richard III's England. And he only improves that position by becoming king. So to be second in command to a man he didn't know in Henry Tudor makes no sense to me. And so there are thoughts around whether Buckingham killed the princes to clear his own way to the throne or to discredit Richard, to cause problems for him um, in, a, in a bid to, to make his own claim to the throne for himself. Um, 
there are uh, several other suspects. The the current modern favourite is is Lady Margaret Beaufort, I guess Henry Tudor's mom. Um, I... Charlie's face. Charlie hates her. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie, she your favourite candidate. She had the most to gain, but I see. I think that's true. I think you can't discount her. I mean. My get out of jail free card here is that I'm not claiming Margaret Beaufort did it because I don't think anybody did it in 1483. So, <laughs> but I don't think you can discount it any more than you can discount anybody else. And my, I mean, I, I would give her motive means an opportunity where other people would deny, it. you know, they'll say she couldn't get into the tower. Well, I would say the tower was a working Royal palace with hundreds of people coming and going all day long. And I'm not imagining Margaret Beaufort creeping up a staircase with a knife, in psycho music playing you know she she would have paid somebody to do it in the same way that we assume Richard paid somebody to do it so I don't think it's as difficult to get into the Tower of London in 1483 as a lot of people seem to to think it was but my I think for my money Margaret's role in this is interesting because she obviously kicks off a lot of the rebellions in 1483 we know she's in contact with Buckingham who she's related to we know she wants her son Henry Tudor home and that that isn't likely to happen in the early years, at least of Richard III's reign, when everything is a bit unsettled. And we know that the Crowland Chronicler, who is one of the most politically well-informed commentators of the time, all that he tells us about the fate of Edward IV's sons is that as part of those October rebellions, a rumour is started that the boys have been killed, but nobody knows how or by who or whatever else. And I think this is what is most likely that Margaret does because we know that she is in touch with Elizabeth Woodville in Sanctuary, the mother of the princes in the tower. And she manages, they have this doctor called Lewis Kellyon who goes between them. And they manage to make this arrangement where Henry Tudor will marry Elizabeth Woodville's oldest daughter, Elizabeth of York. And I wonder whether Margaret Beaufort didn't secure that by saying to Elizabeth Woodville, you know, I'm really sorry to have to tell you this, but, you know, your worst fears are all true. Richard's murdered your sons. We can help you out of this situation if you join in with us. So I don't necessarily think that Margaret murdered the boys, but I think she could have used the story to her own advantage and to the advantage of her son, which is what ends up in, in him being on the throne in 1485. So I, I think she does have a part, but I don't think she's a murderer because I don't think anybody is a murderer in 1483. She was certainly ruthless enough to have uh, played a part, wasn't she, I think? Absolutely, but, no, but probably no more than a lot of other people. I mean, she's married to Thomas Stanley, who is, you know, for me, a, a ruthless figure in his own right. You know, he he deftly made his way through the Wars of the Roses and was one of the few people who came out of it in a better condition than he did. He gained an earldom from it. Um, and I think she's definitely... She's. I always say about Margaret, I struggle to like her but I struggle not to respect her. Mm, yeah, she did what was necessary, didn't she? Yeah, for, and she achieved a, a vast amount, you know, from inauspicious starts. You know, her dad died before she was one. Um, she's married at the age of 12, given birth by 13, already a widow, married two more times. You know, she did not have an easy life. And you look at where she ended that as the mother of the King of England. It's impossible not to respect that as an achievement, um, but I think I struggle to to like her mainly because she's and ends up as an enemy of Richard III. So <laughs> Charlie's nodding like, "Yep, yep, I'm down with that. I can live with that." 
Um, so Charlie and I, we go, uh, we are birthday twins almost. I think we missed by about 12 hours. Um, <laughs> and we go out on a sad little historical thing every year. And this year, where do we go, Charlie? We went to Westminster Abbey. It was my choice. We did army stuff last year. I wanted to do my stuff this year. So we did Dead Kings. We so did we Dead Kings and we saw a box, didn't we? In Westminster Abbey that has skeletal remains in it that people think are the two princes in the tower. Um, what do you what do you make of that? So, yeah, this is a lovely urn uh, designed by Sir Christopher Wren, of all people. A tiny little urn for some human remains designed by Christopher Wren. I don't think they're the princes in the tower, obviously, otherwise that would be the end of our conversation, probably. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> it is a fascinating story. So I think with a lot of these bits of, of history, we have to be aware of the context in which some of these things are happening. So these bones are discovered in 1674. There's some building work going on at the tower. They're knocking down some old buildings, re redeveloping a lot of it. And news reaches Charles II one day that they found some human remains while they were digging underneath one of the staircases kind of thing. And so at this point, it seems to fit Thomas More's story that they were buried underneath a staircase, if you ignore the bit where he then says, and they were dug back up and moved to somewhere more suitable. And I'd also argue that the foot of a staircase in the tower is a crazy place to bury two bodies so near to the scene of the crime, I mean, you could dump them in the Thames, you could row them out to the sea, out to sea. Not that I think about murdering people and how to dispose of bodies, but there are ways to do it. You could find a, a quiet graveyard uh, in the middle of nowhere where no one would ever look for them. Um, but the practicalities, you know, Annette Carson has done a, a really in-depth examination of the practicalities of digging under a staircase in the middle of the night and a priest on his own and nobody seeing him or hearing him and then putting it all back on his own as well and nobody ever noticing that this happened and how deep they were in the ground as well that that kind of doesn't fit necessarily they were deeper than they would have needed to be just to hide the bodies um so they're thrown they, these bones are thrown on a rubbish heap charles ii hears about it and i think something sort of clicks in his head and he thinks you know what this is a good opportunity for me to, to get a bit of a propaganda win here. So he sends people back down to sift through these remains or sift through this rubbish pile to find these remains. And so that's the first alarm bell for me. These remains have been on a rubbish pile for a while. And then people go back down and start sifting through to try and find what it is. And so when they're examined in 1934, there's all sorts of remains in there. There's dirt, there's animal bones as well as human skeletal remains. So somebody's just picked up piles of stuff off a rubbish pile and chucked it in this urn. And I think what Charles II sees in this story is an opportunity for himself because in 1674, he's at odds with Parliament. He wants taxation for a war that he wants to pursue. Parliament want peace. They don't want to give him the money. And I think he draws some parallels between his position in the 17th century and what happened in the 15th century. So I think the, the story would go something like this. You know, you've got in the 15th century, Edward V, poor young, innocent king who is brutally murdered. And in the 17th century, that's Charles I. Yeah, my poor, innocent dad didn't do anything wrong except be king. And you had him executed. And what happens if you execute uh, an innocent king? Well, then you get a monstrous tyrant on the throne. So your 15th century Richard III is your 17th century Oliver Cromwell. And what you need then is someone to come and save the nation from that person. So in the 15th century, it's 
Henry Tudor on his white steed, obviously. And in the 17th century, it's Charles II coming back after Cromwell has died to, to reinstate the monarchy and help them all out. And I think he's saying, you know, this is what you get if you mess with the monarchy. You get a monster and a tyrant instead. So don't be messing with me now. Just give me the taxation that I want. Um, and so as I said, the, these bones, I mean, they were exhumed and examined in 1934. And if you read the report of the examination, which obviously I have because I'm a nerd, it's entirely subjective. So it starts off by saying, today we're examining the remains of Edward V and Richard, Duke of York. Well, that's, that's not a great place to start an investigation of what these remains are. It's incredibly limited. So just by the, the fact that it's taking place in 1934, there's no radiocarbon dating, so they can't properly date the period the skeletons come from. And it's been suggested that they could be Anglo-Saxon, even Roman, or maybe earlier from before the, the Tower of London was even on that site. They couldn't age the skeletons properly. They couldn't even sex them with any kind of certainty. It could be two girl skeletons in there. For all we know, there could be more than two sets of human remains in there. They weren't really able to tell. Um, there was a re-examination of the, the evidence, so the photographs and everything from that in the 1950s, which shed lots and lots of doubt, even at that point, sort of 20 years later, on what they'd found. So if we could get into it now, we could answer an awful lot of the questions without being able to answer all of the questions. So we've got some of Richard III's DNA. Um, and Dr John, Ash John Ashton Hill, before he died, managed to trace a mitochondrial descendant of Elizabeth Woodville. So we've got their mother's DNA, which they would have as well. So if there is any viable DNA still within that urn, it having been on a rubbish pile and chucked around for a while, put in that urn, examined in 1934, if we could extract some viable DNA from that, we do have things that we could compare it to. And that might tell us whether it's the princes in the tower or not, without telling us who murdered them. So if they died around 1483, it still doesn't tell us who definitely did it. If it isn't them, that still doesn't tell us what happened to them. It still doesn't mean that they weren't killed in 1483. So it would answer some questions about what precisely is in that urn. And if it is them precisely when they died. But even if we could get in there with all the modern technology, it wouldn't answer all of the questions that we have about the princes in the tower still. So I still get to carry on saying this, even if we do DNA tests. <laughs> So, so what other significant evidence is there? Is there anything else that we haven't covered? One of the big bits of evidence that I point to is the lack of evidence. Uh, I kind of call it the great silence, which sounds like a, an episode from Doctor Who or something. <laughs> but I think it's a really key element in the story for me. So we know that Richard III, as I said before, never says anything about the fate of his nephews. And I think that's striking because he had reason to make it clear that they were dead if they were. And I think it's striking who else remains silent even after Richard III is dead. So while Richard is king, we can say, OK, you know, no one's going to come out and say he did it because he's the king and he'll have you killed. But after 1485, Richard is dead. We don't have to worry about what he thinks. He can't come after you. And in fact, these are people who would be concerned for the security of the early Tudor regime. So they have a vested interest in protecting the early Tudor regime from potential threats. So Elizabeth Woodville, their mother, she lives until 1492, seven years after the Battle of Bosworth, never once accuses Richard of murdering her sons. We know that he executes one of her sons, Sir Richard Grey, one of her sons from her first marriage. I mean, that's, I'd argue that's different. He was a grown man. He was involved in politics and he was executed after a trial. Some people say he didn't have a trial. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. 
Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. I say he does have a trial, and I'm talking now, so... Um, <laughs> this is my appearance. Exactly. I what I want. You can argue about, about it with me on social media afterwards. <laughs> um, so Elizabeth Woodville never accuses Richard of killing her sons by Edward IV. Elizabeth of York, their sister, is queen until her death in 1503. And so even when her children are threatened by those who are claiming to be one of her brothers, she never says, well, obviously they're dead and Uncle Richard did it. She just remains quiet. None of their other sisters, all of whom live into the 16th century, ever accuse Richard of killing their brothers. Their half-brother, Thomas Gray, the Marquis of Dorset, also lives into the 16th century, never accuses Richard. Not particularly a fan of Richard. He flees from sanctuary over to Henry Tudor's court in, in Brittany and then France. So not particularly a big fan of Richard III, but never says, you know, Richard did away with my half-brothers. And I think one of the things we can point to as well is if, if your Richard III is this evil child murdering monster, if we take a pause and think for a second, when he became king, if we set aside the princes in the tower for a second, Richard had 17 nieces and nephews. And when he died at the Battle of Bosworth, Richard had 17 nieces and nephews. So if he's willing to kill two of them because they might be a threat to his throne, why do we think he ignores all of these other ones? This includes Edward Earl of Warwick, who Henry Tudor treats cheats as a cheats. I just want to say Henry Tudor cheats. <laughs> it's like a tongue twister, isn't it? Which Henry Tudor treats as a threat for the rest of his life until he executes him in 1499. One of those nieces, Elizabeth of York, was at the core of the plot to invade England and take Richard's throne away from him. So if he killed her... If, sorry, if he killed her brothers to protect his throne when they might be a threat, why would he not kill her when she definitely was a threat? Again, we're into the realms of Richard is that ruthless, but he's not that ruthless. He's an evil, horrible monster, but he wouldn't do that. So I think some of these things just don't add up from a kind of a human perspective. And I think one of the key elements of it as well, if we think about the, the written evidence, the testimony that we have from near the time is that all of the early evidence in England is basically rumours and it often doesn't point the finger at anyone in particular. So like the Crowland Chronicle, it'll say, we think something might have happened to the princes, but we don't know who, what or who did it. Um, we've got as many sources that say they think it was the Duke of Buckingham as might point the finger at Richard. So there's lots of rumour and uncertainty. And I think perhaps that's no different to today, is it? You know, you, if you're going to tell a story down a pub, you're going to tell the most salacious, interesting version of the gossip that, oh, you know, probably the king's killed his nephews. But it doesn't mean anybody knows anything. The early certainty that Richard III had killed the princes in the tower originates in France, almost entirely in France. And there are very clear reasons for that. Um, France was, was on the brink of renewing the Hundred Years' War with England in early 1483. So they stopped paying their pension to Edward IV um, and they were harassing the south coast of England just as Edward IV died. And I think when Richard III becomes king, they see a very different prospect in him 
and that dates back to the, the invasion of France in 1475. So Edward IV had been bought off really quickly with a big wadge of money, but Richard had refused to take the, the cash that he'd been offered, um, and he snubbed all of the treaty negotiations. So France were in the midst of their own minority crisis. Louis XI had died just after Edward IV had died, and he'd left his own child behind at the age of 13. And this period of problems for France would descend into a civil war that's called the Mad War between 1485 and 1487, which was a dispute over the regency of the young King Charles. And so I think they had reasons to paint Richard as a dangerous monster and also to speak to the risks of disrupting the, the government of a minor king. So I think it served a dual purpose in France to talk about Richard being a threat because they did view him as a threat. And to talk about the, the problems that you, you know, you're going to get, same thing as the Charles II thing earlier, you kill a, a poor innocent minor king and you risk getting a, a monster in his place. So I think a lot of what I point to as evidence I'm aware is really a lack of evidence, either for survival, but also for murder. And so what I simply try to suggest with the book is that one is no more likely than the other, where we've, we've tended to think that the murders are certain. I don't think you can legitimately say that if you pick apart some of the evidence. I think as well, it's like if this was, I'm, I sit and I watch Special Victims Unit every night and consider myself an expert on the law. Um, surely this would be kicked out for it's just circumstantial that's it i mean there there is just no evidence you know there was there was a trial of richard the third in the 1980s um which is quite hilarious if you watch because there's some young versions of some quite famous historians there most notably david starkey looking very dapper with a weird mustache yeah and arguing vehemently that richard the third was a terrible monster yeah well so they, he's they, never got anything wrong david starkey has no, he? of course never yeah. um <laughs> And so they, they did a proper trial. It had a judge, had two barristers arguing the case uh, and witnesses. Um, and they, the jury that was there found him not guilty because there just isn't the evidence to convict him. Um, and so I think, you know, you, you can talk about the idea of survival. If we get past the idea that Richard III did it because I know it, because that's what everybody's always said. Then we can start to think about the whole idea in the round and we can look at some very different potential outcomes which I think make a lot of sense if you put them into the context of events that happen in the early Tudor years. Well and this is going to be fun getting into these with you and I know Charlie's already like chomping at the bit but do you so in terms of what we or what we've always been told happened do you think there's any further that could should be done to disprove it? I mean I guess the obvious one is to test those remains in the urn at Westminster Abbey um, you know they the inscription that is on that proudly proclaims that this is Edward V and Richard Duke of York who were murdered by their perfidious uncle. So if we could disprove that, that would be really helpful because we can stop telling that particular lie. Uh, even if they are the remains of the princes in the tower, there's no certainty that that would mean that Richard killed them. Uh, we still could have other suspects who could have been involved. Um, one of the most important things that I think is going on at the moment is, is something called the Missing Princes Project, which is run by Philippa Langley, who was behind the discovery of Richard III's remains. And they're, they're kind of harnessing an army of citizen researchers to go into archives across the UK, but also across the continent as well, to look at some documents that haven't been touched for centuries, potentially haven't been looked at by anybody for 500 years, 
never mind the continental ones from the point of view of English history. So even if they don't find anything um, particular about the princes in the tower, it's an incredibly valuable project just in cataloging a lot of stuff that's never, ever been looked at. <coughs> Excuse me. But what if there's a bit of paper sitting somewhere there in a dusty shelf sandwiched between a load of other things that no one's looked at that solves the mystery for us? I mean, how amazing would that be? And I think the only other thing that I would say we could do is, like I've been trying to do, just encourage some critical thought of that accepted story of what happened in 1483. So it, it's a really tangled and messy and difficult period, and it's really poorly recorded. And I think that makes it easy to kind of gloss over with a broad sweep of Richard being the ruthless murderer. And then, oh, it's the Tudors now, so we can talk about that a little bit more. But I don't think anything in life is ever that neat or simple. You know, I mean, I've, I've said before, if it was always the obvious suspect that did it, Agatha Christie wouldn't have had much of a career, would she? You know, there's always a much more to some of these stories than the simple, well, it looks a bit like Richard did it. So let's just say Richard did it and move on to the Tudors because they're much more exciting, which they are not. Oh, we don't, don't even get started history hack. We Our motto on history hack is F the Tudors. We've had enough of them. That's it. Well, they're, they're ubiquitous, aren't they? They're just everywhere. And, uh, and I, you know, for me, anything that the Tudors did, the Plantagenets had done it bigger, dirtier, nastier and earlier than the Tudors. I think, they're Kate, was it not you that argued that the Tudors were the most overdone thing in history down the pub? No, no, Beth took that one. But I uh, have okay. um, argued Tudor hatred a few times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think I did them as the most hated family or something. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. That's it. Certainly in history hack circles. So let's go. I mean, like, we all, we're all dying to know now. So if they escaped, why did we never find out? How was the secret kept? See, I'd even say that escaped is the wrong word there. You can never just let out. Well, that implies that Richard meant them harm and they had to get away from that. Okay. I, I don't think Richard III ever meant his nephews any harm. And I think we one thing we can consider here is Richard had a perfectly good working template for how to deal with precisely this situation. So in 1399, Henry Bolingbroke takes the throne from Richard II and becomes Henry IV, the first Lancastrian king. But in 1399, Henry Bolingbroke is a, is a first cousin of Richard II, but he's not considered by most to be Richard's heir. That position is held by the Mortimer family. And so the, the last Mortimer male adult had died 
uh, Earl of March, sorry, died in 1398, the year before, but he'd left behind him two sons. So we've got Edmund Mortimer, who was seven, and he had a younger brother called Roger, who was five. So Henry Bolingbroke, Henry IV, is now faced with a situation where there are two young boys there who lots of people will argue have a much better claim to the throne than him and should be king instead. And what Henry does is he takes them into fairly loose sort of custody, takes them into his household. A few years later, there's a, an abduction attempt. They're taken. And the idea is to get Edmund to Wales, have him proclaimed king of England. Um, and there's a, a big plan to divide England into three parts between the, the Percy family in the north, England who are in Wales, and then Edmund Mortimer would be king of the rest of England. They're very quickly recaptured. Uh, and interestingly, the House of York are right at the centre of this plot. Uh, Constance of York is, is involved in it and very kindly drops her big brother Edward into hot water by saying it was all his idea. Buys him a little spell in prison, you know, lovely siblings. But they're recovered. They're put into a much less loose custody. So they're kept under much closer guard. They're eventually transferred into the household of Henry V, or Henry Prince of Wales, the future Henry V. And when he becomes king in 1413, one of the first things he does is release the Mortimer boys. So Edmund goes off, takes up his earldom of March, is one of the wealthiest men in the country. The earldom of March is, is a vast thing on the Welsh borders, incredibly rich. Um, and I mean, Roger dies a few years later, but not in any suspicious circumstances. So when Henry V is heading off to his Agincourt campaign in 1415, we have the Southampton plot just before he goes. So again, this is the House of York in the form of Richard of Conisborough, who is Richard, Duke of York's dad, Richard III's granddad, um, wants to put Edmund Mortimer on the throne. So apparently there was a plan to assassinate Henry V and all of his brothers and replace them with Edmund. But Edmund goes to Henry V and exposes this plot to him and drops all the rest of the minute, gets them all executed. And he carries on serving the Lancastrian government until he dies in 1425 as, as Lieutenant of Ireland. So for me, there's a perfectly good workable template of how you have two young boys with a potential claim to the throne. You bring them up, you, you make them loyal, whatever Henry IV had done to them, they were loyal to the Lancastrian regime. Edmund clearly didn't want to be king. He exposes plots against the Lancastrian regime. And if I'm Richard III, I'm looking at that and I'm thinking the only bit of that that didn't work was that initial loose custody where everybody knows where they are and they get abducted to be used against you. So my slight alteration to that plan would be that I will pop them in a, a castle in the north or I'll separate them. One goes over to the continent and I'll make sure nobody knows where they are so that no one can try to abduct them to cause trouble and use them against me. So I don't think they had to escape because I don't think they were in a, ever in any harm. I think, I mean, there are a raft of things that could have happened, but if I had to nail my colours to the mast on this, I think Edward V is popped up to a castle in the north where Richard has been Duke of Gloucester running the north of England for his brother for over a decade, has lots of castles stocked with incredibly loyal men who would keep the boys safe but keep them secret. And potentially the younger one, Richard, goes off to Margaret, Duchess of Burgundy, who is Richard's sister and has lots of, of authority in Burgundy. Again, maybe you don't send Edward V there because it's quite close to the French and that might be asking for a little bit of trouble, but you could send the younger boy there. There's no harm in separating them. They've been brought up completely separately. Um, so I don't think you'd necessarily cause them any distress by sending one one way and one the other way. Um, but I don't think they had to escape because I don't think they were ever in danger. So what about, um, we, we 
touch briefly on one of them. What about the two pretenders, Perkin Warbeck and Lambert Simnel? Um, was there any any truth in any of that? Was was it where where did it even come from? I mean, what was that all about? I mean, so that yeah, I mean, two missing princes and two pretenders to the Tudor crown. I mean, if we're looking for a simple answer. Um, so my theory on Perkin Warbeck is probably fairly mainstream. I just happen to believe that he probably was who he said he was. Lambert Simler is probably where I get a little bit left field on all of this. So for my money, the Lambert Simler affair in 1487 is perhaps the most successful and biggest piece of medieval fake news that we've ever been given. No one seems to question it. But if you do, it quite quickly falls apart and you can see it a very different possible story because I'm not going to claim that I'm right on this. I'm going to say that there are different views of what happened. And again, there's two elements to this story for me. There's the written documentation and there's the human evidence of what people do and how they're affected. So in the book, I, I kind of liken the continued existence of the princes in the tower to a black hole in history. So black holes in space, we can't see them, but we can see the gravitational effect that they have on things around them. And so I characterise the princes like that. If there was ever any evidence that they'd survived, we wouldn't expect that evidence to exist anymore because it would have been destroyed. But we can look for that gravitational effect on the people who were still there who would have been concerned for them or interested in the fact that they might still be alive. And in the Lambert Simnel affair, we get Elizabeth Woodville being accused of being involved, their mother. So if the official story is true and Lambert Simnel was claiming to be um, Edward Earl of Warwick, the son of George Duke of Clarence, who was a prisoner in the Tower of London. Why does Elizabeth Woodville want to get involved in that? Her daughter is currently the Queen of England. She has a, a shiny new grandson, Prince Arthur, who is going to inherit the throne next. What puts Elizabeth Woodville in a better position in 1487 than a daughter on the throne and a grandson waiting to inherit? The only thing that puts her in a better position is one of her own sons on the throne not her nephew, not her, you know, her husband's nephew. And she's quite often accused of being involved in pushing for George Duke of Clarence to be executed. So this is a boy who might well grow up to hate her. So why would she set her own position back by backing this uprising? Thomas Gray, her son, the Marquis of Dorset, her son from her first marriage, he apparently gets arrested and thrown in the tower when all of this Lambert Simnel stuff kicks off. And, and anecdotally, we're told in some of the chronicles, when he says, why am I being arrested? He's told that if he's really loyal to Henry VII, he won't mind a spell in prison to prove it, which is some great Tudor logic. We've got <laughs> John de la Carly's Pole. laughing her head off at this point. <laughs> this is the way you do Tudor. things in Tudor England. Possibly the most interesting person for me is John de la Pole, who is the Earl of Lincoln. And he is the oldest nephew of Edward IV and Richard III. So he's the, the oldest son of their sister, Elizabeth, the Duchess of Suffolk. John de la Pole had been set up as the, the potential heir to Richard III after his own legitimate son dies. So Richard only has one legitimate son who dies in 1484. And John de la Pole is generally viewed as Richard's heir from that point onwards. There's lots of discussion about whether it was the Earl of Warwick. It wasn't. It would have been John de la Pole. But Richard never makes a, a, an express you know, proclamation on this because no king ever would. So in 1487, John de la Pole is the senior male Yorkist heir to the throne of England. Yes, his claim would be in the female line, but the entire Yorkist claim to the throne of England was in the female line. So that's not the bar to him 
pressing his own claim. He's a grown man in his early 20s. He's been trained for government. Everybody knows who he is. There's no question that he's, you know, Lambert Simnel, we're told, is a boy from Oxford. He was taken over to Ireland and trained to impersonate the Earl of Warwick, who is a prisoner in the Tower. Nobody doubts who John de la Pole is. He definitely is John de la Pole. So if you're looking for someone to follow into rebellion in 1487, would you follow a 10-year-old boy who is pretending to be someone who's a prisoner in the Tower of London? Or would you follow the, the 22, 23-year-old Earl of Lincoln who'd been trained as a governor, widely viewed as Richard III's heir, it's a senior male Yorkist. Why would you follow that 10-year-old boy? And more interestingly, John de la Pole joins the Lambert Simler affair. So why would John de la Pole set aside his own perfectly good Yorkist claim to the throne? In 1487, who has a better Yorkist claim to the throne than John de la Pole does? Nobody, except Edward V and Richard, Duke of York, if they're still alive, because they've been re-legitimised by Henry Tudor. Edward, Earl of Warwick, is still barred from the succession by his father's attainder. The only people who have a, a senior claim to John de la Pole are Edward V and Richard, Duke of York. So something makes him set aside his own ambitions to follow what we're told is a 10-year-old boy from Oxford. I just don't buy that. Ooh. The written evidence around the Lambert Simler affair is also really, really interesting. So we have Bernard André, who is a, a poet at the court of Henry VII, who writes a history of Henry VII. And he's a big Henry VII fan, you know, he really likes Henry. But when he talks about the Lambert Simler affair, he says that this, this plot in Ireland emerged and that the boy was claiming to be a son of Edward IV. So he doesn't say that he's claiming to be the son of George Duke of Clarence. And he says on three separate occasions that he was claiming to be Edward IV's son. And interestingly, he says... In one passage, he talks about a herald going over to Ireland. And this herald had gone to Henry VII and said, look, you know, I was around at the time. I could identify this person if they are who they say they are. Um, I'll go and have a look. I'll ask him some questions and I'll prove that they're a fraud. And then Andre says this, this herald comes back and says, well, you know what? They answered all my questions right. Um, and I can't tell you he doesn't look like who he's claiming to be. Um, so obviously, you know, he's just been tutored by some really evil people who told him all the right answers to say. That's the only possible explanation. And frustratingly, Andre leaves a blank space where he could have inserted the name of this herald. But it's been suggested it was a guy called Roger Machado, who was a, a herald for Edward IV and Richard III and continues as a herald for Henry VII and then becomes an ambassador for Henry VII. So he would have been around the court. He would have been around these boys would have known what they looked like, would have known the questions to ask them. And this is the man who goes and comes back and says he can't deny he is who he says he is. And one interesting snippet that I found out about Roger Machado, actually, since I wrote the book, is that he's documented and recorded as owning a house in Southampton that was on Simnel Street. So if we're wondering where this weird Lambert Simnel name comes from, Roger Machado is involved and he has a house on Simnel Street. Is that a coincidence? I don't know. Maybe it is. We get Polydor Virgil. <laughs> My mind is absolutely blown. Kate, Charlie, are you completely like too? I can't. I can't even cope. Please, more, more. Oh. I've got more. I've got plenty more. So Polydor Virgil, in his Latin manuscript, talks about the Lambert Simnel affair being an effort for Edward because he it talks about an Edward, Edward Earl of Warwick. He says. But he says this is about Edward retaking the throne. But Edward, Earl of Warwick, can't retake the throne because he's never been king. 
the only Edward who could retake the throne in 1487 is Edward V, if he's still alive. And this might explain why this Lambert Simnel has a coronation in Dublin. If we think about Edward V, he's proclaimed king in 1483, but never crowned. So does he undergo a coronation to complete his kingship before he heads to England? We don't see any other pretenders undergoing this kind of coronation ceremony. So that would fit as well. There's a, a, an interesting source called the Book of Howth, which is an Irish um, account of um, the family of, of Howth. It's thought that it was written quite late, so it could be unreliable. We don't know entirely how reliable it is. But when it talks about the Lambert Simnel affair, it says you know, all the Irish lords backed Lambert Simnel, um, except for the Lord of Howth. Uh, and Henry VII calls them all over to England in the aftermath of the, the Lambert Simnel affair to slap their wrists and tell them off. And then he gives them a nice big feast. And during this feast, um, he sends somebody in to serve them wine and everything else. And then somebody pulls the boy who's just served them wine to the front and says, ha ha, the boy who just served you wine was the one that you watched getting crowned in Ireland. You know, this is your king. And he has this line where he has Henry VII say, you Irish will crown apes at length. You know, you'll, you'll put a crown on anybody's head. And the Book of House says that all of the Irish lords kind of look around at each other and sort of say, nope, don't know who that boy is, never seen him before. That's not the boy I saw get crowned in Dublin. So this Lambert Simnel that's been pulled off the battlefield, for me, is not the leader of that army. He's not the boy that gets crowned. I think he's a complete red herring. So the boy that ends up going off into the royal kitchens uh, and eventually becoming a royal falconer is a complete red herring. He's the fake news. <laughs> he, he's not the real leader of that army. We even get, if I'm allowed to stray into the Tudor period even further, do it, but do it with disdain. I will, I'll, I'm <laughs> sneering while I'm talking. In 1528, we have a document that's prepared for Henry VIII. Stuff's kicking off in Ireland again, and he's clearly asked someone for a little report on, you know, what, what's Ireland all about? And somebody writes in this piece that says, you know, the, there's the Geraldines and the Desmonds, and, and they're quite similar to the House of York and Lancaster in England. But they've always backed the House of York, as was seen in the time of the king's father, um, when Lambert Simnel um, emerged in Ireland, claiming to be a son of Edward IV. So someone is telling Henry VIII that the Lambert Simnel affair was about a boy claiming to be a son of Edward IV. So was this just a big open secret in government circles? You know, you didn't have to lie to Henry VIII because he knew what it was about, really. And what they've done is just tell everybody else. They've used the thing that annoys every historian of the Wars of the Roses, that everyone is called Edward or Richard or Henry. And they thought, great, we can make something out of this. They, they're saying they've got an Edward over there. We've got an Edward in prison here. We can make a complete joke of this uprising by saying that they're trying to pass this lad off as this, this prisoner that we've got over here. So I think they just managed to make a joke out of it. Um, so for me, I think the Lambert Simler affair was an uprising in favour of Edward V, not Edward, Earl of Warwick. And all of that before we even get to Perkin Warbeck. I mean, if anybody needs to go and get food or anything, I don't know. I'm <laughs> waffling. No, everyone's shaking their heads. Go, keep going. And I think Perkin Warbeck, just for me, he has such an astonishing career. If we think about who supports him, um, they're quite often rightly identified as people who would want to cause trouble for Henry VII. So you've got James IV of Scotland, Charles VIII of France, Margaret, Duchess of Burgundy, Richard's sister. But I doubt that crowned and anointed monarchs would be willing to 
to set up this random boy from the streets of Tournai, which is what we're told Perkin Warbeck was, as a potential king. Because in doing that, they devalue the sanctity of their own kingship. They're saying anybody off the street can be set up as a king. In Margaret's case, she definitely does want to cause trouble for Henry VII, but she wants to do it by restoring the House of York. And she doesn't do that by championing a random boy from Tournai who is not a Yorkist prince. There were plenty of other options, most notably the rest of the de la Pole brothers who would go on to cause trouble for Henry VII and Henry VIII, Edmund de la Pole and Richard de la Pole. They start calling themselves the White Rose um, and the, the rightful kings of England and all this sort of thing. And I think in 1495, we have the execution of William Stanley. So at Christmas 1494, a man named Robert Clifford, who had been in Calais, widely proclaiming that um, Richard, Duke of York, was, was alive, that Perkin Warbeck was genuine. Uh, and Clifford had he'd taken part in jousts um, at the wedding of Richard, Duke of York. So he would have been around the court. He would have been aware of, of who these people were, what they looked like. But he suddenly comes back to England and decides to, to grass on everybody. So he gives Henry VII the list of everybody in England who's backing Perkin Warbeck. And top of that list is William Stanley. So the brother of Thomas Stanley, who is Henry's stepfather. William Stanley is the man credited with leading the charge at Bosworth that killed Richard III. He's also Henry VII's Chamberlain. So a man with easy access to the person of the king. And this must, I think, have terrified Henry. Um, Nathan and me makes a, a point that Henry probably saw this coming and knew that William Stanley was up to something and so was, was guarded against it. But nevertheless, this is a man who has access to the person of the king, deeply involved in a big rebellion against him. And I think William Stanley gets his head chopped off. And as part of his trial, he talks about the fact that he'd said he wouldn't take up armour against this boy if he turned out to be the real son of Edward IV. So in 1495, William Stanley, a man who had been close to the centre of Edward IV's government and who was close to the centre of Henry VII's government, didn't know that the princes in the tower were definitely dead. And that makes me wonder how we think we can know with any kind of certainty now. In 1495, he was literally willing to put his neck on the block because he didn't believe that the princes in the tower were definitely dead. After Perkin gets captured, um, we get this confession which for me reads far too much like a state-prepared document that he was forced to sign. Bernard André tells us that he is beaten up by Henry VII's servants, and I think this is because he looks so much like a Yorkist prince. We've got this pencil sketch of him that looks ridiculously like Edward IV. And I think his looks, again, before he's taken to London, he's beaten up. So Richard, Duke of York, is the prince who is brought up at London around the court. Everybody would have known what he looked like. And so I think he's beaten to obscure the looks that would have given him away. Diego de Valera, the Spanish ambassador, has an interview with Warbeck after he gets to London. And he talks about, in the, the translations, it often translates as, as de Valera said that Perkin was changed. But in the Spanish, in the original Spanish, he says that Perkin is disfigurada, which is just Spanish for disfigured. So he's not changed, he's disfigured. And I think his beatings continue so much that he gets to the point where he is he's disfigured. One of the heralds reports that he has kind of no luster in his left eye, which might be the result of lots and lots of beatings around it. And there's a suggestion that a, a droop in his left eye might have been one of the, the physical marks that would have given him away, which obviously would have to be obscured 
before he could be brought to London and shown around everybody as a fraud. So as I said at the start, for my money, two missing princes, two pretenders, far too much of a coincidence. Lots and lots doesn't add up about the official traditional stories. And I think you can pick it apart without ever being able to prove what I'm saying. I get to glory in the fact that I can't prove what I'm saying, but you can't disprove it. <laughs> wow. Um, Charlie is the biggest Ricardian in the room. Oh, I'm, I'm just, my mind is completely blown. I, I completely agree with you that it's often not in what is said, but what's not said that speaks so much. And the fact that all those people who would have known those boys were were involved in this and and that that Elizabeth of York couldn't say, hey, that's my brother, because you know what would happen if you say that kid is my brother. He's dead. He's got to go. And I think part of the Perkin Warbeck story that's interesting is that having spent five years or more trying to take Henry VII's throne, he's captured and initially he's placed in a kind of really loose house arrest at court. His wife is put into the household of Elizabeth of York. And although we have no record of Perkin and Elizabeth of York meeting, I find it impossible that she wouldn't have talked to Catherine Gordon, his wife, about who he was and, and what she knew and all of that kind of thing. I find it impossible that Elizabeth wouldn't have been curious enough to, to make efforts to see him or talk to him. And why? Why would Henry VII be willing to allow this person who has challenged his throne like, like that for so long? Why would he just let him live under house arrest in the royal palace? Seems like utter, utter madness. Unless he's your wife's brother who she doesn't particularly want you to murder. <laughs> It's mad. Kate, what do you make of it? I've been a fan, a fan of this theory for quite a while now, quite a few years. Um, and I, yeah, I, I think there are far too many big, big holes in the evidence that, that they were murdered at all. You know, the fact that the people who should have questioned it didn't. The fact that the people who should have told the world that it had happened didn't you know the fact that Richard didn't say yeah the princes are dead the fact that their mother didn't question where they were there are too many holes that are just too big for for it to be believable I think Absolutely. I think with Elizabeth Woodville with their mother you get a situation in 1484 where she comes out of sanctuary mm. um, at the start of April and for me the timing is important here because Richard's parliament has just closed. He's dealt with the October rebellions. He's now legally king. The, the children of Edward IV are legally, officially declared by parliament to be illegitimate. And so I think that this is the point at which he can go to Elizabeth Woodville <clears throat> and say, all those stories you've been fed about your sons being dead are lies and I can prove it. Because I can't make sense of her coming out of sanctuary and handing her daughters over to Richard III if she's still utterly convinced he murdered her sons. People will say, you know, she didn't have a choice. She did. There's an indefinite right of sanctuary at mm -hmm. Westminster Abbey. People will say she was just dealing with political realism. I don't buy that because she's still up to her neck in Henry Tudor's plots. Her daughter is still promised in marriage to Henry Tudor, who is saying he's going to come and take the throne to do it. So if you're hanging on to something, you hang on to that. You don't hand your daughters over, one of whom is the centre of this plot to take the throne. Hand them over to the man you're utterly convinced has already murdered your two sons. The yeah, only thing that makes sense for me is if Richard is able to say to her, 
your sons are fine and I'll prove it. Yeah, there are too many holes and there are also too many facts that don't fit the story. That's it, particularly with the Lambert Similar Affair, I think the more you dig into that, the less it makes sense. And, and all of that human evidence of why people did the things they did is important to me because all of these people were just people, just like us. You know, mm. you think if I was in that situation, how would I react? Why would I have done that? What would make me think in that way? And by putting yourself into those positions, you start to think well, it doesn't make sense unless it's to do with Edward V. If you make the Lambert Simnel affair about Edward V, the involvement of everybody makes sense. The fact that some chronicles talk about him claiming to be the son of Edward IV makes sense. The whole King Edward thing, the coronation in Dublin, makes sense. And it doesn't make sense without that. Wow. So, assuming their survival, where did they go and what did they do? Why did they never come back? Well, I mean, I'd argue there that two of them, did, they did come back. Yeah, on yeah. On different occasions. So, But what happens to them in the end, I guess, is the million-dollar question. And, yeah. I, and I'm going to, again, preface this with I don't know. Yeah. So if there was evidence of their survival that was floating around after Bosworth in 1485, I don't think we should expect that to have survived. Henry VII has a vested interest in destroying it because it's the only way to protect himself. He has to re-legitimise yeah. Edward IV's children to marry Elizabeth of York, thereby re-legitimising the princes in the Tower. So we know that Henry destroys all the copies of Titulus Regius and, and has it struck from the parliamentary records unread, which is not the usual process. We know that in 1487, he burns all of the records of the Irish parliament around the Lambert Simnel affair so that no one can know what was said in that parliament. What we don't know is what else he might have destroyed. So if we, if we were talking about Richard III here in 1483, we get sources that talk about evidence being shown in London uh, for Lord Hastings' treason before he's executed. And we get the sources talking about evidence of the, the pre-contract that makes Edward IV's marriage bigamous being shown and examined in London and accepted by people. But we don't have any of that evidence now because it would have had to have been destroyed to make Elizabeth IV, uh, Elizabeth IV, <laughs> to make Edward IV's daughter, Elizabeth of York, um, legitimate again. So we kind of, we have evidence of evidence but we don't have any of the evidence to see if that makes any sense. No, we don't know what it says. Uh, this is the big, the big hole in the Royal archives for the Nicholas II rescue attempts and stuff. It's like, there's stuff gone because you were up to something, but I just don't know what. You never um, wanted anybody to know what was in there. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So, so I think that we can expect not to find much written evidence, at least in this country, of the continued existence of the Prince in the Tower because the government had an interest in making sure there wasn't any. So if oh, I'm... the Tudors again. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess if I'm, if I'm pressed, my, my scenario is that Edward V is sent up to one of Richard's castles in the north where his whereabouts is kept secret. He's perhaps in the household of the north, which John de la Pole runs for, for Richard. And we know where Richard had an, a network of loyal men um, who would keep the prince safe but also keep him secret. I think that helps to explain the, the Tudor mad dash to York in the aftermath of Bosworth, um, although admittedly they did need to secure Elizabeth of York and Edward Earl of Warwick from up there too. But perhaps Edward V made it to Ireland before they got there, and that explains why this Lambert Simnel affair emerges in 1487 and is an uprising in favour of Edward V. Um, 
And I think one more thing about the Lambert Simler affair that is, is perhaps interesting is its timing. So we're told that the boy who led the army and that was captured on the battlefield um, was a 10-year-old. And we, this is stated in John de la Pole's attainder in Parliament later. Warwick is 12, so maybe you can pass off a 10-year-old as a 12-year-old. Uh, it's maybe not too much of a push. But neither are old enough to be on a battlefield leading an army. It's a really weird decision to follow a 10-year-old waving his sword around in the air into battle. Can he even pick it up? Yeah, was it a wooden sword? Well, interestingly, Shakespeare accuses Richard III of killing the Duke of Somerset at the Battle of St Albans when Richard was two and a half years old, which always gets me images of like Bam Bam running around. With yeah. his blood, you know, tiny <laughs> baby Shakespeare's and like the worst historian ever. <laughs> um, but interestingly, in 1487, if we think about Edward V, if he's still alive, he's now 16 and a half. So that's a similar age to the Black Prince at Cressy, to Henry V when he's Prince of Wales at the Battle of Shrewsbury. And Edward would be the son of the undefeated warrior king, Edward IV, who is now of an age to win his spurs in the same way as the Black Prince and Henry V might have been. So if you're looking for who to follow, are you going to follow a random 10-year-old boy from Oxford or are you going to follow the 16-and-a-half-year-old son of the greatest warrior king in living memory? Well, I'm pretty sure I know who I'd follow onto the battlefield out of those two. On that um, note, well, you have blown our minds today. Thank you so much for coming on to share with us uh, all of the stuff. Well, or not all of it, because everybody go and buy the book so that you can digest this at your own pace as well. The survival of the princes in the tower, which we will absolutely make available on the history hack bookshop, but also your other books as well. So you've written on Stephen and Matilda's civil war, Richard the third loyalty binds me Richard Duke of York King by right. And on the wars of the roses as well. So there is a whole mass of history available from this man. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.